You remember the treehouse, right? I do. Well, the way that came about is I think there was some sort of a like a tennis party going on one day and um, my father was out on the, the back patio where next to the tennis house where the tree is. And um, he just kind of looked up and he saw that a lot of these branches made like a perfect cradle. So he got a ladder and got someone to go get him a bread knife. And he climbed up and he started hacking off branches with the bread knife to kind of get, you know, an idea of whether that could support a platform for the treehouse. And, you know, it was just looking at the shape of something. And then that goes to the next step of, oh, what can we put up there? He hadn't set out to create a treehouse at the estate. He saw an opportunity based on something he saw, and that made him think, oh, what could we do with that? And he used to talk a lot about inventing to order rather than just a lot of quote unquote inventors have an idea for, oh, wouldn't that be great to have a whatchamacallit? And they spend a lot of time and energy, and then they haven't thought about, well, how much is this going to cost? How many people would want this? You know, they, they don't go through some of these other steps that my father describes as being a very important exercise before you throw a lot at something like that just because it seems like a good idea to you. Well, so he did have that side very much. And again, he wasn't just inventing to invent. He, in, he was inventing to be successful. Mm -hmm. And right. you know, being at on and working for the military, you know, this wasn't... And there are exper experimental labs that are about just designing for an unknown future, you know, where it, it doesn't have to meet a marketable um, product uh, kind of idea. And I think that's what his house was. I mean, he yeah. could do he could do things in real time without worrying about whether it would sell. If he liked it, that was enough. Right. But but he had the other side, which was you know really coming up with an i an idea and a marketable product that people would buy. And I think that, that that's something that made him very successful. He wasn't interested in terms of his business, designing things that no one wanted. But in his personal life, I think he was interested in designing things that made him happy and that didn't fit a mold. I mean, he really was iconoclastic in that way. I wanna do what I feel like doing and I don't want to just achieve what other people expect of me. He loved the idea of surprising and delighting people. The Tom Jones dinners would be a perfect example of that because, you know, how many people's homes do you go to where there's a throne at the head of the table and you eat all your food with your fingers and you know all of this was to sort of break out of the the shell that people bring with them you know socially a lot of quote unquote inventors have an idea for oh wouldn't that be great to have a whatchamacallit and they spend a lot of time and energy and then they haven't thought about well how much is this going to cost how many people would want this you know they they don't go through some of these other steps that my father describes as being a very important exercise just because it seems like a good idea to you 
Well, so he did have that side very much. And again, he wasn't just inventing to invent. He, in, he was inventing to be successful. Mm-hmm. And right. you know, being at on and working for the military, you know, this wasn't, and there are exper- experimental labs that are about just designing for an unknown future, you know, where it, it doesn't have to meet a marketable um, product uh, kind of idea, and I think that's what his house was. I mean, he could do yeah. he could do things in real time without worrying about whether it would sell. If he liked it, that was enough. Right. But but he had the other side, which was you know really coming up with an i an idea and a marketable product that people would buy. And I think that that that's something that made him very successful. He wasn't interested in terms of his business, designing things that no one wanted. But in his personal life, I think he was interested in designing things that made him happy and that didn't fit a mold. I mean, he really was iconoclastic in that way. I want to do what I feel like doing and I don't want to just achieve what other people expect of me. He would put people in unconventional situations to see how they would react. I mean, it's the same thing with the treehouse. You know, there aren't many adult treehouses where people are giving dinner parties. Yeah, and people having a fantastic experience, somewhat, you know, where their imaginations could run and they could be themselves in a different way. And I, um, I don't know if I mentioned this, but I gave uh, Simone a Tom Jones party, having gone to she turned 13. And so we have pictures of, and you know, the girls only had knives and brought out the chickens and they had to tear them apart or cut them, but there were no other, there was no other cutlery and um, they were dressed in medieval costume, you know, so it was having been to a Tom Jones dinner for your um, 17th birthday, I guess, or it might've been your 18th, I'm not really sure. I don't know if you remember this, but you paid my cab from Pasadena basically out to the house in Bel Air so I could come to the party. That was incredible. And your dad was tossing broccoli spears to people at one point. (laughs) Anybody want broccoli? Boom, here. Well, it makes me remember about how I didn't always feel as if I was getting the attention that I wanted for one of the Tom Jones dinners. I dressed up in Renaissance costume and I festooned my horse with ribbons and flowers and I rode her bareback into the house, into the dining room as a surprise. That's a great story and your dad must have been thrilled. That was the kind of thing he'd say, yeah, now that's that's something good to do. I've been writing about some of this stuff in the last couple of days, that's why it's kind of at the forefront of my my mind right now. I'm actually reworking the memoir that I wrote quite a few years ago that I was not happy with. And this has been at the suggestion of Jerry, who said, if you wanna sell a book, don't write a biography about your father, write a story about what it was like for you. And there were some horrifying things, and but I never wanted to write a mommy dearest kind of story. Yeah. I, you know, I don't want anyone to feel sorry for me or to think that I'm a victim. 
I just want to be able to report what happened, what my reaction was, how did it change me one way or the other, how have I resolved this years later, um, do it in an interesting fashion. I want to be able to talk about it, you know, and look at why I did certain things. Yeah. You know, and and why I don't do that anymore and how I try to make amends for some of the stuff I've done. But at the same time, I don't want a lot of attention on myself, but it's hard to write something like this without focusing attention on myself. So I'm I'm trying to balance all these things out. Well, one way I think about this is when you can't talk to people in your life about what's happening for you and what's happening for you is disturbing you, you act it out in different ways. When you're angry and you're overpowered, you know, that you can't even say you don't like something or you don't want to do something or, you know, you've been blamed for something that's not your fault or you're not getting things that other people are getting as a matter of course, you're not getting it at all. You know, so you, you know, these are symbolic behaviors. You know, if you won't give me things, I'm going to take things. You know, if you blame me for something that's not my fault, I'm going to create a situation where you are being blamed or doing something wrong and you don't even know you're doing it. Or, you know what I mean? I'm going to set you up. And kids, kids have a way of doing this. You know, I knew someone whose parents, you know, were scapegoating them in the, in the family. And so they would steal things and give them as gifts to their parents. And then their parents would be wearing these things and using these things that were stolen goods, you know, and thinking they were very loved and this was such a great thing. But, you know, meanwhile, that's not really what was going on at all. So there, there's this idea that you can, that kids retaliate in different ways. I'm gonna fail at school. I mean, I really do see your dad's creative process at the house when your parent, your grandparents were alive in some ways was his his way of retaliating. It was kind of a passive aggressive. I mean, if your mom and your grandmother were going out all the time trying to make this place look like an upper class, you know, country manor, and he's busy, you know, making the front door up in the middle of the building so everybody who walks in goes, what's going on here? So I do think that kind of acting out behaviors are really interesting. The story. There was a lot of pressure. I mean, I, I do think the story that was just sort of a recent thing is a mutual uh, classmate of ours who remembers coming to your house for birthdays and her impressions of that and that whole birthday party thing for kids. And I, I think I think that's an interesting thing, particularly because um, everybody there was sort of this competitiveness about how fantastic you could if you were living in the Hollywood community and you really were being raised in the Hollywood entertainment community and I don't know if you saw it that way but as we've talked about and I've thought about it, of course you know so many people in the entertainment world um, that it was to in some ways be like Shirley Temple you know and her birthday parties or what was shown of what very very rich people did for their children um, which you were living all the time it was a birthday it was a party all the time um, but I don't know whether that's important to your memory, but I think it creates a lot of pressure about who you're supposed to be. Well, it was certainly an unusual upbringing. 
Well, we talked about this before of what what your dad's idea of success was. We've talked about what his mother's idea of his success might look like in her mind. And I don't know what his vision for you was, if he had one, um, or what vision you thought you needed to have for him. But I think being highly creative might be one of those things that you have to do things in a really innovative way. You know, you need to be larger than life. Well, I do remember from the time I was quite young that my parents were always going on and on about getting into a good college. You know, my father went to Yale. And by the time I was college age, they were admitting women. So it was like, well, you should you should go to Yale. Well, I applied to Yale. I didn't get into Yale, but I applied to Tufts University and I got into Tufts. During my senior year at Westlake, I was acting out a lot and I did not go to school very much my senior year. And it's kind of amazing that I managed to graduate. I was not taking it seriously. I was much more interested in going out to clubs at night and partying. And by that time, my parents were living separately and I was free to come and go at either of their homes. But lots of times I wasn't at either of their homes. I was at a friend's house. It didn't seem to matter to them where I was or what I was doing. There was very little accountability yeah. ever. It was fine with me because, you know, I I liked being able to do whatever I wanted to do, but by the same token, I'm sure I I missed a sort of normal close family life which I don't think I ever had. And I'm not complaining about it and because it, it did provide an interesting life for me although not always a comfortable life for me. I don't know. I mean, I think the three ring circus of your house and also your parents split up. And I think when parents split up, it's not unusual for kids to just fall through the cracks of that because there's so much underlying turmoil that's going on emotionally. And I think, you know, I don't know what those specific years were. I still don't have in my head a clear timeline, but obviously by senior year, your parents were really very separate. Right. They were together under the same roof at Neems Road um, until I finished 11th grade. And that spring, my grandfather, my father's father had died. So, up until that point, even though they were living separately on, under one roof, you know, it was under the guise that they were still together for my grandfather's um, benefit because he was a devout Catholic and divorce was out of the question. So that's the story I was told about why they were all still there under the same roof, even though they were living separate lives. The other part of this is, is that I don't think my father necessarily wanted us to leave, but my, my mother very much wanted to leave. I can remember driving around um, in the flats of Westwood, south of Sunset,
over the years with my mother and you know she'd kind of slow down and she'd see a sign that a house was for sale and kind of look at it longingly yeah so i mean you're you know i think of people as having divided selves a lot of times multiple parts of identities and goals and they're not necessarily consistent with one another and so your dad having this glorious mansion that's a very traditional home and at the same time turning it into a kind of amusement park with changing images of what it was and having his parents living there and also his wife and children i mean it's it's sort of like i get to have it all and i get to be who i am even if it doesn't really look that way or jive you know and and um I do think it relates to the idea of acting out in the sense that you have these different parts of yourself and these different feelings you're having, and there isn't a way to bring them together in a, in a harmonious manner. Yeah, so he wanted your mom to stay there so he could feel like he was still doing the things that his parents expected of him. And I think that's true for a lot of people. They you know, have a secret self or a secret life or another set of things they're doing that no one knows about. You know, and it explains a lot when people can't authentically accept who they are, let alone make it all work together. And so there's a lot of cost to declaring that you're divorced and going your separate ways. And, and not the least of which is your children don't have the home that they used to have. So I, I don't know, I think it's important to find ways to write about what really happened what you were really feeling. And I also think it's just very parallel to what your dad was feeling. And your mom, I mean, the sense of, I'm this isn't who I really am. I need to make this look more like and be more like what I really want it to be, but I can't really do that all the way. For a very long time, I was, um, I was really angry and resentful towards both of my parents. First of all, my father, because I felt that I suffered unnecessarily because I didn't get the attention I, I thought that most kids got um, because sometimes he would get very angry with me and accuse me of doing things that I hadn't done. Not that I hadn't done other things that were wrong, but but, you know, accusing me of things that I absolutely hadn't done. And then when I would try to explain to him that I hadn't done them and what had really happened in this situation, he got angrier and angrier. And I would start crying out of frustration. And then it was that sort of gulping for air, trying to talk and cry at the same time that was awful you know I I would end up running out of out of the room and then the other part of it with my mother was except for certain situations I felt that she was so self-involved and self-centered I couldn't get what I needed from her especially when I would come to her about something terrible that had happened with my father and tried to report it to her and she didn't really want to hear about it because she was having her own struggles. Right. So then it was like, well, who do I go to? I guess I got to figure this out myself. Right. It made me 
stronger, I guess, in a lot of ways, because I had to figure things out for myself. But then it also made me sort of a control freak, where I felt as if if I wasn't in charge of everything, and then that continues to this day, and I'm sure you've seen this a lot in me over the years. If I'm not in charge of something, I'm uncomfortable because I feel like I need to control the situation in order for it to be safe for me. Right, right, and it's not emotionally. I mean, the thing is, your dad was abusive and he was authoritarian um, as much as he wanted his own freedom. He didn't want to hear what other people had to say unless he wanted to hear what they had to say. But he didn't, <clears throat> why he was accusing you, whether he was drinking and these were fantasies or thoughts he had about you know what must be happening or why why things were going the way they were going. But, you know, that's a form of emotional abuse. And, you know, when nobody even acknowledges that, you know, you start to wonder, you either have to pull away and say, this is wrong and I'm gonna take care of myself, which sounds like you did at least part of the time. But there's also the sense of, you know, um, not being able to get away from it or handle it or control it really, and just having to take it. And that's really hard. I remember the first time it happened so vividly to this day. And it was when we were living on Cashmere Street in Westwood. My sister and I each had our own rooms and her room had a baby gate across it. So if she woke up early in the morning, she couldn't get out of her room. I woke up one morning, I could hear her moving around in the other room. So I went over and I went in her room, stayed there for a little while, and then I left and I went back in my room. Apparently, I didn't latch the gate properly. And she got out and she went into my parents' room and woke them up. And my father was furious. He called me to come out to the hall, I did. And he said, you let Diana out of her room you know you were never supposed to do that. And he started spanking me so hard, I peed on the floor right there. And I mean, he was just wailing on me. And I was trying to explain to him what, you know, what had happened. I mean, I was a kid. I mean, Diana couldn't have been more than two years old, so I couldn't have been older than four and a half. So. A four and a half year old didn't secure a gate properly. Big deal, you know, and it was such an overreaction on my father's part. It just terrified me. And I think it was from that point on that I realized I had to be very careful around my father because I could not predict how he would react to any situation. Yeah, that's a really painful, poignant, and powerful story, really. And and I have to think about it, you know, not just as you, but as, as him as a little kid with parents who, as a mother who did that, his father's an absolute, you know, there's hell to pay, literally, you're gonna go to hell through this. You know, and even though people may say, I never wanna be that way, or I really believe these other things, that their automatic reactions to fear, you know, he was, you know, uh, wants his sleep, and wants to know the baby's safe and that they don't think about her at all. You know, what an absurdity to have two young children think that you should just get all your sleep. But this is something, I, you know, these come out of the page of how people were raised, you know, that you have to beat them and be horrible for them to understand the problem. And 
be really threatening. And so, you know, I think your dad never resolved. I don't think he ever resolved any of the abuse that he experienced. I mean, I think having a, the house represents that to me symbolically. I'm never going to finish it. You're never going to be happy here fully because I'm not going to do that for you. And he was still afraid of his dad, afraid of the disapproval. So, you know, people get stuck and they move past it, but it's not, it's still there, you know, and I think it takes a lot of work to uncover those things and resolve them. And some of them never fully get resolved. You know, there's, there's always pain about it. You know, parents who were forever disappointed or were abusive or who drifted off and you never really got to have them know you the way you wanted to, you know, or you had to do all the work for that, you know, okay. You do all the work and they, they start to acknowledge you and the part of you that never got acknowledged unless you were doing all the work is still enraged about that. Why should I have to do all of this to get a little bit from you? You know, and I think control sometimes is a part of just maintaining your boundaries so that you're not going to get ripped off again. Agreed. You know, so there, so, so there's a real rip off to having parents who, you know, bring you out as display or are always partying and having a good time, but not really thinking about what's going on for you or want you to do certain things. You do them and they just expect that to be what you do. And there's no great appreciation for that. And I do think, you know, a lot of people uh, coming from wealthy um productive families are quite neglectful and emotionally abusive to their kids. And everybody thinks because you have money, you know, then you must have been happy. And I mean, just, you know, our, our schoolmate who thought that comes from that kind of family. You know, if there's all this wealth and all these things going on that look like so much fun, you must be happy because that's so great. You get a pony, you get a pony at your birthday party. That means you must have had a fabulous day that day. <laughs> You know, and you might have gotten yelled at in the morning on the way out there for not, you know, doing something or other or for not being grateful enough or whatever. And your day was miserable, but everybody thought it was great. You know, so you start to think, okay, it is great, but it's not. You know, so these things, these parts of you split off because they don't make sense given the narrative you're being told. I mean, you're just talking about that. I, I wasn't doing anything in, in senior year. I wasn't at school. I, I was off. I, nobody knew where I was. I didn't feel anyone's paying any attention to me or cared about me. But I succeeded. And so, you know, inside, you know, that that doesn't really make any sense. But I'll take it if other people are happy about it, right? I feel as if I got away with a lot. Well, I think you were stuck with a lot. That's what I would say. You were stuck with a lot and you got away with a lot to try to keep it even. I think that that's important. I mean, I think that, you know, the places where we feel emptiness or loss or being unseen or diminished can be places that call upon us to do things that really aren't what we want to be doing, you know, but, you know, we think if we do that, then we can feel better about ourselves or we can feel more complete or more accomplished or more loved or, you know, like we'll live forever, whatever, you know, the lurking, you know, fears that we have. And, and I think it's useful not to be fear driven as a motivator, because a lot of times when you're doing that, you're doing the wrong, you're doing the wrong thing. You're not doing the thing you really want to do. You're doing something you think is going to make it, you know, like you're shoring up a wall that doesn't need to be there. Right. Well, and I think this manifests itself in my 
over-preparedness. It actually started back in 1971 with that big earthquake in Silmar in Los Angeles, which was so terrifying to me that it, it took me years to get over it. Somehow this massive external force that was shaking the house and the ground and making waves in the swimming pool just it, it terrified me more than anything that had ever happened in in my life and then anniversaries tomorrow of that oh my god you're right you're really right february 9th 1971 well and that was right when you know 71 was right when things were shifting and your parents were no longer parenting yeah and I wanted to sleep in my mother's bedroom instead of my bedroom, which was half a mile away on the other side of the house. She wouldn't let me stay in her bedroom. I, I cannot imagine it. I mean, even to this day, if my kids were scared and want to come and sleep in my room, I'd say, absolutely. I mean, I pretty much say that to anybody who said they were scared, you know? Well, and it's interesting because I remember your room and I didn't know where anybody else was. You know, our house is so much smaller, you know, and everybody knew where everybody was all the time. And when I was at your house, I couldn't figure out where anybody else was. And I sure didn't think they knew where we were. <laughs> and I think for youngsters, that's scary. Yeah. You know, and, and the earthquake was, um, was terrifying. And uh, <laughs> I remember that my dad, um, it started and I picked up our horrible pet dog who slept in my room, Theo. And he said, go down and get under the dining room table, which is what I did. And there was stuff flying off the walls, but it was really scary. And there were all the aftershocks. And, you know, I, I didn't get along with my parents, but, you know, there was a sense that, you know, um, they wanted me to live, you know, they were, <laughs> you know, and um, I don't think they were always paying attention that I felt but I think to go through something like that and not know that your parents are protecting you is is going to stick with you as you you have to take care of yourself and I think little kids you know decide you know I'm going to be this because they see the lay of the land of who people are and what they're doing and they pick their roles at an early age that you know Alfred Adler was really big on that you know the, your earliest memories and you know that you you know, you at age four, and I'm sure even earlier said, you know, I, I can't trust this guy. You know, he's losing it. His, uh, his level of anger is, this is inappropriate. Can't you see that? You're being and kids will say, well, I can't trust him. You know, I can't, I can't, I, I need to steer clear. Yeah. I wanted to be invisible. Yeah. So he couldn't get you. Right. But I already felt invisible in a lot of situations because I felt that they weren't seeing me or caring about anything that I did, good, bad, or indifferent. Yeah. Well, I think we should come back and talk about this some more, about being invisible to your parents. And I think, I think your dad probably felt that also. And I think his inability to see you was comes from in some respects, never being seen. I mean, I think you learn what it is by experiencing someone really paying attention to you. And he had to do so much to get attention. It's like he he couldn't believe that he really 
by himself would warrant that and didn't I think he got it and and your mom probably didn't either and was used to paying attention to people a lot in order to get attention but you know she for whatever reason she was trying I think she was trying to get away from your dad also I mean whatever he was doing to you is probably doing to her as well right yeah well on that note Chimmer cheery. <laughs> well, I I do think people resonate with these stories. Yeah, I, think they, I hope they do. I hope they do. And again, it you know, it, I I think it's important to share this. And you know, I don't feel that way anymore. I don't have a lot of fears about anything at this point in my life, um, because you know, I'm not I'm not a scared little child. I'm an adult. And, you know, I have good coping skills. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this. I really, um, I really appreciate it. And um, I love you a lot and we'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If so, please like, subscribe and share it with your friends. There are lots more exciting episodes coming up and you won't want to miss a single one.